Before we jump into this episode, quick reminder that everything said on Bell Curve is a meme and nothing said on Bell Curve is financial advice. Enjoy the app. All right, fellas, welcome back. Uh, another Bell Curve. Uh, Jesus. Oh. All right, fellas, welcome back. Another uh, Bell Curve roundup here, round two. Uh, joined by the, Michael. We got the rel curve. We got the rel curve. Yeah, we got the rel curve. We got the rel curve. I right, gotta edit that out. Uh, Michael's one and two. Vance and Yano, fellows, welcome back to the show. How you doing? We're back. Good to be here. After, after a week off, we're back. Week off. That was my bad. That was my bad on the timing. <laughs> Sorry about that. Completely. It's all, it's all good. The, uh, it's all good. On the timing. Sorry, guys. Felt really bad about that. Uh, I rugged uh, Michael and Vance last week. Sorry, guys. Um, what you? What'd you do with all your? Time off. Francis, you're walking your dog. Yeah, I walked the dog. Took him out. You know, he really appreciated it. So it was good. All right, guys. So it's been a big, this is like the first week that we've actually had uh, markets move in a positive direction in a long time. Um, good move. People are pretty excited about it. Uh, it was basically up across the board. So, you know, seven day returns for Bitcoin are 20%. ETH is up 15%. Solana is 35. AVAX 29. Adam is uh, hanging in at just three. They never really get the pump, do they? But uh, I, I'd be curious um, just what you guys think about this and just help like contextualize. Is this like the beginning of a broader rally in your guys' mind? Is it sort of a dead cat bounce type thing? Or like, what do you, what do you think about uh, why prices moved? So I think if you look at the past week, crypto prices are up 15, 20% in the aggregate. If you want to get some context around that number, look at the 10-year, which today is under 3.4. So it's 3.35. You know, it's, it's nice to get 3.35% yield in a year, but when assets are moving 20% in a week, you know, that, that's when the, the risk reward trade off starts to get real. Um, and those bonds start to get less attractive. And, and what I see is people calling it a bear market rally, an echo bubble, a dead cat bounce, like anything except for saying like the other B word, the bull market. And it feels like the, the intellectual window dressing of calling this an echo bubble is just a polite way for bearish people to admit they were wrong without actually admitting that they were wrong. But the money has to go somewhere. And right now, crypto is that somewhere. And at the aggregate, like it seems like the crypt, the market is net short a lot of ETH and Bitcoin after all of these major players sold. And you have Genesis filing today. You have, you know, whatever that BitLazo announcement going down. Uh, it doesn't look like Binance was fine. The $2 billion that everyone was saying was going to happen on Twitter. Like a lot of the boogeyman have been taken out of the equation. And it's not really surprising to see, you know, get off to a hot start after such a bad year last year. But if it's a new bull market, who knows? But you got to start somewhere. Yeah. The, the only thing that I'd add, I, I completely agree with all of that. Um, only thing that I'd add generally is when you see over a holiday weekend, low liquidity market, and something move, expect that there's going to be some announcement that happens basically the day after or two days after, because these announcements, especially something like Genesis going bankrupt, don't just happen in an echo chamber and, and in, over the course of a few hours, they happen over the course of a few weeks. And so there's there's going to be some you know swath of people who at least understand that this is happening sooner than most people will. Um, and Usually, if if that's the case, the markets will trend in that direction ahead of time, especially when it's you know Bitcoin ETH that are making big moves. And and so generally, I would say 
the BitLazo, um, Nothing Burger, and the Genesis filing, uh, which you know supposedly we're, we're recording this on Wednesday the 18th, um, but uh, you know expect that those are going to be positive uh, signals to the rest of the market, and people just got ahead of that, you know, five days ago. So I don't, I don't think we're back in a bull market here. Um, my this reminds me of some like I I would probably call I'm probably one of those people Vance who you're pointing at being like dead cat bounce or bear market rally or something like that's what I would throw this bucket in. And it kind of reminds like, if you look back at the charts from 2018 and 2019, like there were, I don't know, five or six times, I feel like when the price is rallied from, I remember there's that one rally in like maybe 2018, it went from six or seven K to 11 or 12 K. There were like set like four or five or six different times. The price is pumped like 30 to 50%. And I think that, and, th and then fell back down. I, I'd probably bucket this in that camp. I think my takeaway though, from this is that, so I, so I do think prices end up going back down. My takeaway from this though, is I was like, what one of these times will, will be the real time that you don't get it back. And it was just a reminder to me, like how quickly narratives can shift and how quickly the sentiment can shift. So like for this specific one, January, 2023 pump, I think prices end up probably going back down. But it's but one of these won't go back down. And the people kind of sitting on the sidelines, not exposed to crypto right now, will get left behind in that and that. So it, it was just a nice reminder to me of that. So you know, what's back down? Like one one K ETH, like eight hundred ETH? Like wh wh where would you say like we have a we have a really good friend um who uh, will we'll remain nameless for this story, um, who in 2015, I think, when ETH just launched, we're sitting in a hot tub in Hawaii, and it had crossed uh, $1.50. And we're sitting in the hot tub, and I remember so distinctly this friend basically being like, eh, I'm going to wait till it goes back below a dollar. It never did. What What's back down? I, I don't think it's, it's not worth it. It's not worth it trying to pick the absolute bottom. You're never going to do it. You'll drive yourself crazy yeah. doing it. And there's a better chance that you just end up in cash for the whole rally and, and just, you know, kind of generally pissed off that it's all happening. It, it's just a matter of whether I, you buy I, it and I, how much I, you I, buy. I, I agree with that. I'm not a trader. I buy, I auto buy Bitcoin and ETH. Actually, I turned off my Bitcoin auto buy, but um, I auto buy ETH every two weeks and just always have and just will continue doing it. And like, I have the middle of the bell curve take. Like, I just don't like thinking about it and I just buy. And then like when prices drop 80%, I will buy a lot more. And that's, that's what I've been doing. And like, I'm, I am buying, I was buying, I am buying because like, I don't know. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not trying to time the markets. I just don't think this specific rally is the one where like we go back into like parabolic bull mode, you know? I agree with that. I, I mean, this is what we talked about on the predictions episode. Like I, I still think there's like some pain to work through and it depends on what you define as a bear market but like my kind of working thesis is that we've seen the bottom in terms of prices like i think that is the right question like go back down to what i mean there's only so long things can go down and there are also like a bunch of positive catalysts that are out there like right now like the nasdaq is up you know in the last week and that was because of a cpi report and now you know cpi and inflation has turned and it's probably going to continue to go down which sets up a dynamic for more positive surprises for the market to react to. So I don't necessarily think it's going to go parabolic from here, but I think it's, there's more reason to be bullish than bearish. I think at least from where I'm sitting right now, I don't know. The, the, I think my, my counter to that might be like you, I don't know. I'm probably over emphasizing the 2018 and 2019 bear market, but like we did 
we we had a real so we in December of 2017 we hit 20k or like 19 and a half whatever it was we had a drastic pullback down to like five or no excuse me down to like 7k all through 2018 and we're like all right the bottom is in and then there was that like really nasty pullback um to like 4k in 2019 came back up and then in March of 2020 slammed down to 3000 and then that started the bull so I'm I'm probably overemphasizing like the that that specific cycle, but I think it's tough to say the bottom the bottom's like forever in. But I also don't think you should be trying to time the bottom. Timing the bottom is, is usually a bad plan. The other stuff that I'm I'm looking at within the context of crypto is like the, the cloud index in January and, and just like general tech has just been getting slammed. And usually you see like this very tight correlation to all the big tech names and the medium small sized, you know, tech names in crypto. Crypto and tech are, are decorrelated at this point. I think that's pretty interesting. And then, you know, the other thing that you look at, if you want to use the 2018 fractal as, as, as your, you know, starting point is um, rates have peaked, you know, pretty convincingly. The rates peaked at 4.5. Now they're down to 3.3. If you think that this cycle is liquidity and interest rate driven, like we are now on the other side of that. And so, you know, it would have been pretty hard to call the bottom in June of last year when rates were rocketing up. I feel a little bit more comfortable now that the cycle is is progressing on the other side of, of the rate mountain and it's going down. You know, that, that's going to be a huge boon to the economy versus last year. So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty content for where we are right now and, and don't think there's going to be a ton much more pain to come. One thing that also is um, might be worth noting about this rally is that this was a this was the first Bitcoin driven rally I feel like that we've seen in in some period of time. Um, which, like, regardless of whether or not you think that's the way that it it should be, is like when I see that, that just reminds me of like a healthy that just points to a more healthy organic sort of rally. Uh, I, I'd be curious. There was a tweet uh, from Ryan Watkins, who you know, is the ex analyst at Masari and is now has Syncrasy Capital. And it was basically something to the effect of, we can link it in the show notes, but it's like the, the big driver, right, of cycles moving forward is going to be the ETH innovation cycle, right? And he kind of listed different platforms. There was like, he basically implied it's been this way for a while, but it was like ICOs, then DeFi, then NFTs. Um, I'd be curious what you guys think about like catalysts moving forward. Is that like a worthwhile, you know, subject diving into like ETH kind of leading these cycles moving forward? Do you think it's going to be like continue to be Bitcoin or how do you think that whole dynamic is going to play out? So I I would broadly say I agree with Ryan Um, on the Bitcoin side, not to say that, you know, there's anything that could change my mind. There's tons of things that could change my mind. I just don't know what the catalysts are for Bitcoin right now. Um, You know, the inflation narrative was kind of debunked. The like balance sheet asset was kind of debunked, Um, like the innovation and like applications built on top of Bitcoin, you know, we, we have yet to see anything really kind of come to fruition there. Um, and so if you think about just like from first principles, like where is the new narrative going to come from? Um, and I agree generally that in, innovation on Ethereum has never been higher than it is right now. I actually think that new category, I can't remember if he mentioned this or if, you know, I, this is something that I'm just making up right now, but I think layer twos is actually going to be that next category of innovation where you're going to start to see real transaction volume, therefore revenue flow through layer twos, um, EIP 4844 is going to reduce the the uh, call data expense on, on layer one by, you know, 10 to 100 times. Um, like that type of new 
aperture lens opening is is something that's fundamental for this entire ecosystem just because it means that there's new applications that previously were too expensive to run that you can now build on top of something with the shared security model of ethereum like that that type of cycle i think is is real and and um i would i would probably say 2023 is going to be based around layer twos um and the innovation cycles there can I, can I get your guys' take on this? The, the the battle of the year right now is shaping up to be, at least of Q1, is Arbitrum versus Optimism. Like those, if you've looked at the users and like developers and projects, like all of those charts, they're basically like every week they go back and forth on who's on who's like, quote unquote, winning. Do you have thoughts on Arbitrum versus Optimism and like who wins that game? It's a good question. I mean, we're so we're investors in Optimism, so we're, we're biased. Um, I would say the first thing is that the stakes are very high. If you look at Optimism, it's valued at eight billion. That's that's valued like a, an L one, you know. And so, like, it's not at this point. There's only two L twos. There's going to be a field of new ones launching this year. Scroll the Polygon ZKEVM. There's like a bunch of other ones. Like, there's going to be a lot of these, and the stakes are very high. Um, the quest that Optimism has been doing have been just frankly like incredible. They're doing like fifty percent of ETH L one transactions right now. It's all at a very low gas cost, so like there's less of a you know hurdle to actually transacting, but that's meaningful usage. On Arbitrum, you have this very healthy DeFi ecosystem led by GMX. I don't think GMX is a great model. I think it's gonna blow up at some point. But like you have this like DeFi ecosystem that's taking shape in Arbitrum. I would say it looks a little bit more mercenary than Optimism does, like you know, the missionary Ethereum camp, but that's my high-level take on them. Uh it feels like optimism has a little bit more of the Ethereum ethos, which is what we ultimately want to invest in. But I think the, you know, the open question for each of them is, is what is the token used for and, and how does it accrue value? And, and, you know, what is the long-term roadmap for it? Optimism is very focused on public goods and distribution of the coin to, you know, everyone who uses optimism. Arbitrum kind of hasn't revealed those plans yet, but that'll be the next shoe to drop. And I think you're going to see a lot of acceleration on both of those camps as a result. I mean, it obviously hasn't been talked about yet. Um, it's probably the worst kept secret that uh, you know there there are probably fittings for an optim or an Arbitrum token. When do you think that launches, and and what do you think the differentiation would be between the OP token and Arbitrum? So, I mean, Optimism's token is like you know thinking about it, it, it should be used in some sort of mechanism to auction off the role of being the sequencer. The sequencer is still centralized. They still need to decentralize it. Adding a token and shifting who sequences what and when, you know, based on their token holdings is probably the next thing that they do. Arbitrum doesn't really have that exact same security model. And so that's not really as relevant of a token use case. But, you know, the, the things that we see in Arbitrum are, uh, you know, they take a very uh, anti-MEV approach. Like they say that things should be sequenced in the order that, uh, they're requested. There shouldn't be that much room for people to, you know, back run or front run or do things like that. And so I think that, you know, they'll end up internalizing the MEB as well, but just in a in a different kind of way, I would say. But, you know, they might look somewhat similar from the outside, but they'll be totally vastly different economic models. And I see as a question just as in, like, not, I, first of all, I also love uh, Optimism and like Ben Jones, like I totally see what you mean with like the, like missionary type vibe, but um, I'd be curious as investors in that project, like how much do does like the token sort of structuring play into things? Because not not meant as like a dig, but there's like a decent overhang in terms of like fully diluted valuation of optimism versus like the circulating supply 
today. So like how much do you guys kind of take take into account that whole structure or is it more of like, I guess I'm just adding, just curious, like is it more of like an equity kind of player? How does that work? Uh, so <clears throat> I have yet to see, and I, I think we can kind of uniformly say the same um, across the board, but I've yet to see something that accrues a value to both the equity and the token. Um, it's really, it really does come down to, are you a token based company and are you building, you know, for that type of an ecosystem or are you a company and your value is going to accrue to your equity and you can't really do both. Um, or I've yet to see a model that works for both. When we're talking about making any investment, the only value that we really ascribe to things is what's the fully diluted valuation. And that's how we make investment decisions. I would say normally, for the most part, what we do is is think about you know getting a, a sizable amount of ownership at a lower valuation and making a more concentrated uh, portfolio of investments as opposed to other firms. Um, you know that's just kind of the way that we like to invest, and, and so that's a difference with us. I, I would say you know we, we invested in a later round of optimism um, more you know for the ethos and the the narrative of you know decentralization and, and supporting that ecosystem. We also have a number of projects that we have more of a concentrated ownership uh, of that are built on top of optimism, um, and so it you know is uh, yeah it just matches with our our thesis. Um, but you know it, it is a fully diluted valuation um, that we are looking at and thinking about. Makes sense. Um, should we should we talk a little bit? This news broke like thirty minutes before we recorded this, but there's basically an update on uh, Genesis and VCG as our structuring. So. We talked about this uh, in one of our last roundups, basically just talking about what a, uh, a bankruptcy might look like. So it looks like creditors for this is uh, this got reported by the block, but uh, Genesis creditors may be negotiating a, a bankruptcy. So essentially, there would be a period of like a forbearance period of between one to two years uh, under pre prepackaged bankruptcy plan. And that would be in exchange for cash payments and equity in DCG. And basically right now they're negotiating the terms of what the chapter 11 filing would look like. So again, this is not something that's been, you know, this isn't in stone. This is still like sort of rumor mill, I would say. But um, what do you guys, I mean, what do you guys think? This is kind of exactly what we said might happen, right? The time to pay back the debt and some conversion to equity. So I think this, this, the reason why this could be interesting is it just removes one of the things that's sort of seen as an overhang or something, another shoe that might drop. So. I think it kind of seems like good news, but what do you guys think? It's exactly what we talked about, right? You know, Barry, Barry payment program where he works it out. They put Genesis under, um, they don't have the protracted fight over is DCG Genesis is Genesis DCG. And he just gradually pays them out. Um, it feels like this is a plan where they get access to a lot of the cash assets and equity of DCG without actually having to fight them for it. Um, or, you know, when you put DCG into bankruptcy, Having lawyers and, and people like that and liquidators administer it just mean you're going to bleed value. So I think this is generally a best case outcome for everyone. Uh, my question is like, what happens to Gemini? Uh, like they still have $900 million hole in their balance sheet. Like I've said before, they do very little spot volume. If that is a, you know, even like a hundred million or $200 million haircut, I'm pretty sure the equity value of Genesis is negative. So unless they're planning on, you know, giving portions of Mars Junction ticket sales to creditors or like, you know, selling some of their Bitcoin. Like, I don't know what the twins do, but yeah, I, it's good to just see everybody, you know, formally taking responsibility, putting it under, drawing up a plan to pay back creditors and, and kind of putting this to bed. 
So, so the <clears throat> the thing that I would note, and, and let's just assume that you know the reporting that exists right now is what will be the actual outcome. Uh, probably going to find out in the next day or two. Um, what I think is important to note is this is fundamentally different from basically every other bankruptcy that we've seen so far in the crypto space because you're coming into whatever Chapter 11, Chapter 7, Chapter 15 proceedings with a plan and you've already come to basic agreement with the creditors. Um, whereas, you know, when you look at Voyager, Celsius, FTX, all the others that are that are currently going through the process right now, you, you just frankly are hoping and planning and waiting for, for some type of resolution. Um, and looking at, you know, oh, and I think Vance had to jump to a call, the lo- looking at just like how everything else is working out. If you look at, you know, the Twitter feeds of Voyager, Unsecured Creditor Committee, um, like it, it's just a complete mess. And that mess is going to take a long time to unravel. Um, no one, it, it, not everyone is going to be happy. Like there will be people that are favored or, or disfavored in the process um, because it's not an easy, clear cut example. And so if this proceeding is coming to, you know, the actual filing with a plan in place, not only to Vance's point, does it save time and, and therefore a ton of money, but it also just makes it really simple for everything to process. And it'll process a lot faster than the others that are currently ongoing. Is this a save time or buy time type of deal? Because when I was reading, I mean, the deal just drops. So I've been reading about it, but it seems like the TLDR is that Genesis is in default, um, but really they're trying to buy time to work out the issues. with. Uh, but as they try to buy time, creditors want to get some value in return for the time. So to get a deal done with the creditors, one of the things that DCG, the parent company, is offering is equity in the parent company. Do I understand this correct or am I way off here? No, no, you're right. It's in, and you know, I, I haven't kept up on it yeah. as it's happening in real time since we've been on the call. But um, let's assume it, it, it could be both buy time and save time. It could be either or. It depends on how it's all structured. So if you're able to basically call off the creditorship and have the, the creditors not force a Chapter 11 proceeding where everything goes on, on the balance sheet, everything you know kind of goes up in smoke and, and you just kind of like see where the chips fall eventually, this could be a model that saves that Chapter 11 official proceeding and, and the process that everybody is going through that I was referring to and just buys time for the creditors to not you know, force, uh, you know, force bankruptcy. Um, so it, it really depends on the details, but I don't know. It, it could be other way. Yeah. It's, it'll be interesting to see what happens with Gemini. Like Gemini is, um, yeah, that's a, that's interesting. Gemini's got a proposal right now on, uh, there's a, there's a new poll on maker that, uh, actually has to get voted on by today. I think it's tonight or tomorrow morning. Um, but there's a new maker poll that was launched to determine whether the GUSD PSM debt ceiling should be reduced. Um, and if you lowered it to zero, that would effectively eliminate the GUSD PSM. Um, what is the voting right now? The last time I checked this morning, the option was to leave the G, the GUSD PSM at 500 million. Um, so, so if that went through, if that won, then DAI would continue to be backed by GUSD through, through Gemini. Um, on one, yeah, I'm, I still haven't voted yet, and I'm actually I would I would love to get your guys' take. I'm kind of unsure how to vote here. Uh, on one hand, I would like to support Gemini and support like them, and uh, I think GSD's like the Gemini Maker Partnership has been really strong for a long time. On the other hand, I'm like, do you want to 
like why expose yourself to that risk if you're if you're maker so I'd, I'd be curious how you guys would 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 handle this if you were me I also really like the Winklevoss twins. Like they've done an enormous amount for the space and Gemini is a great company. But let me ask you this. Would you rather hold USDC or Gemini dollars? I'm just kind of like, what is back? What is backing that anymore? Like, I, I think it is appropriate to ask like the counterparty risk that you're taking on at this point. Like this was a really tough situation that the twins had to face, I think, because I sort of do agree with Vance's take that like they I, I don't think they're there's gonna have to be another side of the ledger for that 900 million dollars basically that's what I think like either they need to make customers whole or they cannot make customers whole but their reputational capital is going to take a hit and it might not this might be the way that it appears because if it was me and I'm looking at Gemini as an issuer and a creditor I'm kind of like <laughs> doesn't look quite as solid as it did 12 months ago. It's Reputational capital has taken a hit. It's not is going to take a hit. Already yeah. has. And yeah. and yes, I agree. They've done a lot for the space, you know, um, been promotional for the space and, and, and representing the space, but they took $900 million of customer capital and gave it to one counterparty. The, you know, that, that, that decision in and of itself is troublesome. Yeah. There's another thing going on with Maker right now that's actually pretty interesting that hasn't really gotten much news. So they did a deal with Coinbase um, a couple months ago, if you guys remember that. There's um, So right now the implementation is going through and there was a new post that got made um, that like kind of did not get much attention. I didn't see it anywhere, but there was a bullet that I was reading last night that says um, Coinbase retains the ability to veto a withdrawal of USDC by Maker governance. So... That just didn't like, and okay. So like, so someone asked a question, like, why does this have to happen? Well, I'll, I'll read it. And uh, Se uh, Seb on the strategic finance core unit at Maker was like, the veto is needed for Coinbase to follow their their custody procedures. It and then he goes, it is what it is. And that like that, I've been thinking about like their deal with Coinbase and then Maker's deal with you know the G GUSD and Gemini, and I'm like. I'm not originally, I like the Coinbase thing, but I'm like, man, I, I'm not sure these are the right, this is the right way to be going to be like putting more and more stuff in these centralized exchanges, even though Coinbase is very uh, reputable. It's like, I don't love that they have this ability to deny any withdrawals. I don't know. Maybe I'm overemphasizing that one bullet point here. And I know it's probably the legal team at Coinbase needs this to happen, but yeah. It's, it's kind of interesting. Like what, you know, not that this really is that, but this is ultimately where this is going. Like what ends up trumping something, a governance vote, a company's terms of service or a law? You know what I mean? They're, they're kind of like ships passing in the night right now. And some people like weight those very differently. I don't know. At some point, rubber is going to need to meet the road is like DAOs. If you, they continue to interact with companies, like there has to be some way that these, that they can talk. Um, I'm kind of, I'm kind of on your page. I, well, you know what? I don't really know the financial situation of Maker, but I think this was going to represent what, like thirty million dollars worth of revenue. So I guess, I guess I would kind of like weigh the revenue against how much runway I have as an organization, and then I would try to get some amount of like risk, right? Like, what's the risk that the PSM gets disrupted, and I need to pull those funds to stabilize it, and I can't because 
Coinbase might be in trouble, right? Because the reason why you'd have to defend the peg is because there would be some market trouble and then maybe Coinbase is in trouble at the same time. So actually just talking that out loud, I probably wouldn't do it unless they need the money. Yeah. My frustration with it is that Coinbase never, it, they weren't upfront that this was the case. So like it, this should have been in the original, their, their original proposal was great, super thoughtful, really well baked out. Maker, we asked, we asked a lot of good, I think we asked a lot of good questions. They had really good responses. This was never mentioned. So that, I think that's where my frustration is coming from with Coinbase is like that, this should have been super clearly labeled that this was a requirement. Uh, yeah, the not, not saying in, you know, big fans of Coinbase, they're, you know, uh, you know, our, uh, we worked with them in a number of different ways um, and not saying that this is the case, but it does remind me that, you know, what we're seeing on the venture side and, and uh, you know, what we're uh, talking about with a lot of our portfolio companies is we're, we're kind of entering the, the market phase of like, you tell me, you show me the valuation, I'll show you the terms. And it's, it's really, you know, one of those models of, um, and we've seen this with a number of portfolio companies that are going back to market to raise, you know, continuation or bridge financing, you know, been, it's not the same market that it was 12 months ago when they raised their seed round or their series a and and you know they're having to negotiate on you know the finer details and it's not you know the typical yc safe that they're that they're using it's you know a rip down and and you know um deal point negotiated conversation every single time and it just feels like one of those um continuation examples of this is just where we are in the market and um, yeah, maybe I'm over-indexing on the venture side, but it does feel like that's the case on the venture side as well. Can, can you describe a little bit more what you mean by that, Michael? Because this is like, again, I'm not an expert in this, but this is around the period of time where like structured rounds and things like that come out. Could you could you just describe what that what that means for founders or people who might not be familiar? Totally. And, and, and structured rounds is exactly what I mean by, you know, I'll show you the terms kind of perspective. Um, which is if you want to raise at the same valuation. So in a lot of these market cycles, what, what actually does matter in these fundraising events is what is the valuation? Because not only does that set, you know, the, the structured things like, or, or the typical things like, uh, you know, sh stock options for, for employees or what the strike price is on those stock options, but it's also just like narrative building where if you have a down round, that could be, you know, a morale hit. Um, it could hurt you in terms of, you know, the executives that you're trying to recruit. Um, you know, there, there's just a lot of like bias that goes into whatever the valuation is. And if the, if the, if the valuation is trending up or if it's trending down, like there's a lot that's baked into that. Um, and so for founders, there's really a strong, um, prerogative to, uh, maintain or increase the valuation at each round. But what that comes with, with, um, you know, a market like we're seeing right now is that's just not where the market is going to be, especially if someone raised in the last 12 months, um, or, or frankly, the last 24 months, um, it's unlikely that you're going to be able to see the same valuation unless business metrics are really increasing. And so what a lot of investors will do in times like these, when you're talking about, you know, a continuation or an extending financing is they're going to bake in controls and, and, um, you know, it could be governance, it could be financial, it could be, you know, business oriented controls that enable, um, just uh, more security from an investment perspective. So this could be liquidation preferences. Um, this could be, um, you know, superior convertible debt to everything that exists so far. It could be um, uh, superior pro rata rights where they get actually more ownership in the next round or more opportunity to invest in the next round if there is a next round. Um, it could mean, yeah, a, a number of different things. Um, and, and you can kind of get, 
you know, really creative if you really want to in terms of what goes in. But, um, you know, these controls can ultimately hurt the founders and the employees of these companies if and when there is some liquidity event. If, let's say, you know, the Series A investor has three times liquidation preference, that means that they get three times their money out and then they participate in in whatever is left uh, for, from the liquidation of the company. Um, and that could you know, really, really hurt in terms of, you know, what value is left for anyone that's been working there. Um, so it's, it is kind of entering that cycle. We've seen it a couple of times with some of our portfolio companies that are coming back to market. Um, I think it's probably going to continue for the next year as well. Um, so just as a, you know, cautionary tale. Yeah. And um, what, what would you say, Michael, like in terms of like, liquidation preference that that's super helpful and i think it's kind of non-intuitive for a lot of founders out there like what if you become like what's kind of like a standard right it's like 3x or 1.5x or is there a standard at all or like what's crazy versus so like the market or or what is considered market terms will change with i would say the broader market what is typical is you know one times liquidation preference so um Basically, what that means is, uh, you know, if if there is a liquidation and, um, you know, there's $10 million that are put into the company, investors get their $10 million back is is kind of like what is standard. Um, once again, some sometimes these liquidation preferences could be multiples where it's two, three times, and then it's participating preferred shares where you're getting the liquidation preference and then you're participating pro rata with your ownership of what's left. Um, so these can get pretty, pretty dicey pretty quick. Michael, do you guys have a standard, like, you always do one one times liquidation or something like that? Or is it based on the valuation? So if it's a really crazy high valuation that you think is too high, you might go to 1.5. Or like, if it's a pretty low valuation, you're really happy with it, you would do like, no liquidation preference, or is it more standardized? It's very standardized for us. I mean, we, we as I was describing with the optimism example, that's, it's an atypical investment for us because of the size. And it was more of a it was more of an ecosystem investment, um, and and because of that, most I would say ninety five percent of the investments that we make are at the earliest stages, so seed or Series A, um, and because of that, the valuations aren't out of whack relative to where the business is or the product is or or where the founding team is, um, and so we just have a very standard you know one times uh, non participating preferred shares. Interesting. So yeah, founders out there, just be be aware, right? Like they're. Uh... You know, people need money, but also like you can lock yourself into a structure that's like tough, right? Uh, on the event, like a, a successful exit, the window gets like smaller and smaller the more you add these sorts of things. Um, Michael, I'd be curious to get your, and I know Vance has a lot of uh, perspectives on this, but one thing that we haven't really covered uh, very much on the show, let's talk about ETH in like two buckets here. Like maybe we could talk a little bit about like deflationary ETH, which is like starting to make the rounds on, on Twitter. And then maybe we can talk about this Shanghai. Uh, upgrade, which will allow people to take their money out. Like we've, we've talked where their ETH out of the unstake their ETH, basically. We talked like a little bit about this, but there's been a lot of confusion about like how the queue kind of works and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, so maybe just like frame the, the context of the debate around, oh, maybe we could use this as a jumping off point. First of all, there's been pushback from the Bitcoin community, right? I think it was, uh, Alex. Oh gosh, I'm blanking on his last name. Um, but he, he tweeted out like ETH is advertising a 7.5% yield which like I, I i like alex a lot like had him on the show a number of times but like also i don't think that was a super in good faith kind of tweet so maybe you could describe a little bit michael about like where that 7.5 percent yield is coming from and then like it'd be good to just get your thoughts on like this whole like burn and having eth have a deflationary 
monetary model and like why that why that's a good thing. Totally. Um, so I'm not exactly sure where seven and a half percent comes from. Um, what we usually track is just like what are the general staking providers, uh, um, you know, actually providing. So Lido is one of them. Uh, Coinbase uh, with CBETH is another one. Um, it seems that those are in the like, and then there's like Rocket Pool, there's Stakewise, there's, there's a number of these providers, right? Um, and uh, it seems like most of those over the last 30, 60, 90 days since the merge have been on the order of about four and a half to five and a half percent on average. Um, there was that period of time, I think, in, in early to mid-October where you saw the amount of activity on ETH really ramp up pretty drastically. Um, and those staking rates, I think Lido actually hit above 10%. Um, and, and that's just like, you know, because of the amount of, uh, um, you know, revenue that's flowing through the protocol in, in the form of gas fees um, that people are using to pay for transactions on the protocol, um, you know, it really ramps up, you know, the amount of percentage uh, return that you can get from staking. So what what's advertised, I'm not sure, but, you know, that that's basically where it comes from. Um, and what's different about this versus just about any other protocol that's generating, you know, quote unquote revenue is that this is real yield as opposed to nominal yield. Um, and the difference is, you know, how much ETH is needed to be created every single block that this revenue is flowing through to be able to actually get to that yield percentage. And, and um, you know, that I think is a, a major difference between, you know, Ethereum or any other protocol, but that's, you know, one of the reasons why we believe that, you know, the the nominal uh, yield is something that we probably shouldn't look at when evaluating any any of these protocols and real yield is really kind of the, the core metric that needs to be evaluated. Um, in addition to that, there is this concept of deflation um, within the protocol itself. And, and so there's a percentage, I think it's about 85, 90% of the transaction fees that are going through um, each block that are burned in the form of, you know, the the uh, EIP-1559 uh, burn mechanism. Um, just this last weekend, uh, ETH went officially deflationary since the merge. It happened previously, I think, in October or November, um, and that went inflationary again. This is all basically just a byproduct of the amount of uh, gas fees that are being charged every single block for these different transactions. And when they reach above a certain threshold, you know, the, it, each each of these blocks is net deflationary. And then if you strain a, a long enough period of, of them together, you get to a net deflationary perspective as well. And so you can kind of bucket this again and credit to Hal Press from uh, North Rock Digital, who, who really kind of coined this um, concept of you're, you're creating the revenue model of the staking returns themselves, which is mostly based around people using the protocol. And so that's the real yield. But within the real yield, there's also the deflationary percentage that you can factor in because your ownership in the protocol itself goes up if it's net deflationary versus inflationary. Um, and so you put these two numbers together and you know, that's where you get to the point of having something that if it's four and a half, five and a half percent of, of nominal staking yield that you get just from staking the, the tokens themselves, you can bake in whatever the net deflationary percentage is on an annualized basis into what your real yield is. Um, so anyways, long, long uh, babble there. But I, I think broadly, you know, that's how you would get to a lot of the, the metrics around what the staking percentage is. In addition to that, there's this concept of MEV boost um, that I think Lido is is really um, supporting right now. And 
as uh, more stagers go through the Lido ecosystem, you get, you know, MAV actually flows back to the stagers themselves. So you can get, yeah, that's why you would see somewhat different staking percentages on these different providers. I think it's really, it's a super interesting experiment because I forget, we talked at one, we had some discussion on one of these shits about like inflation and um, it's like what you get for the inflation. And, you know, it's been around for almost 10 years now, like nine years, I guess, uh, later this year. It's hard to think of that many assets that actually have a net deflationary issuance policy. Like there just aren't very many examples, even like huge, very mature companies, like have some sort of inflation schedule. Like if you just looked at stock-based comp and, uh, and you know, periodic sort of equity raises and stuff like that. So I'm just very curious to see how it all works out. I think it's like amazing for uh, ETH holders. There's also something really elegant about the design of the system. If you think about it in terms of like, it's a self-balancing like monetary policy, which is what I kind of wish existed in TradFi, right? You kind of remove a lot of the human decision-making and panic, which is basically what the Fed's been doing for two years. And you just put it right there in the code. And honestly, it's like a very compelling value proposition. I, I sort of find it. I don't know. That, that's my take. I, I agree. I think the the fact that it's deflationary and, and I think as more activity increases over time, we're going to see it continue to get deeper and deeper into deflationary status. Um, just with, I think it's like 15 GUE. If it's over 15 GUE, like it, blocks are net deflationary, something like that. Um, but it, it's a massive financial experiment. You know, you've got this multi-hundred billion dollar asset class that has a ton of activity flowing through it in a natural way that is now deflationary. That that aspect alone is going to be fun to watch. There, there's a there's a concept in energy markets uh, called like peak oil. When when people thought that we had discovered, you know, all of the oil that would ever exist and like the world was net short oil relative to like population and economic growth. And, th- and that like drove like this whole narrative of like oil going up. Um, it didn't end up being right, but like it was a very powerful meme and narrative. Um, I do think with ETH, there's a strong chance that the maximum number of ETH that will ever exist at the same time is actually in the past. Like, I don't know if we'll ever go inflationary again, but there's a good chance that we've already seen peak ETH. And I think that is going to be a meme that drives a lot of kind of the, uh, the scarcity dynamics of Ethereum. You know what else is fun? Do you guys know Paul Ehrlich? Did you guys see he came out with something recently? It was back in the news. He's this like academic biologist type guy. He came out with something called the population bomb about, I think, like 30 years ago or something. It ended up being extremely influential. And it's, and it's, uh, you know, a lot of people adopted this idea that the biggest problem humanity was going to face was overpopulation. And you were going to have like famine and starving and we weren't going to have enough food to feed all these people. And now it's like the exact opposite, like the biggest problem every nation is facing. It's like they have horrendous demographics and they're like not going to have enough people and they need to fix it through immigration. But it's just a funny because I know peak oil is like a hilarious thing, too. It's just like that was so wrong. I know. Um, I, I, know the like, I feel like I know people who didn't have kid who didn't have kids because like either overpopulation or they don't want to. You know, bring bring kids into this bad world. I'm like that. That's, that's, such that's a, so that's lame. Such a lame perspective, dude. I. That's like. No, like we're that, so, okay. Yeah. Did you guys? Do you guys watch Light uh, White Lotus, the second season? Of course, of course. Okay, you know that conversation that they're having 
And you're like kind of supposed to, there's like the New, the New York-y, San Francisco-y kind of couple. There's like Aubrey, uh, what's her face? The, you, you know, that couple. And then there's like the couple that's supposed to be kind of like, they're like in an open marriage type scenario, like kind of douchebags. You're not supposed to empathize with that. And, and she says something to the effect of like, like, I wouldn't want to bring a kid into this messed up world. And the other couple was kind of like, that was a nuts thing to say. And I was like, I'm on board with you. That was an, that's an insane thing to say. People have had kids through wars and like way worse than what's going on right now. I just think that's, yeah. I don't know if you brought up the population bomb because of, uh, because did you see the Wall Street Journal article about it like a week ago? Oh, there was, there was literally a Wall Street Journal article about like whatever happened to the population bomb. And there was a quote in there. Wait, let me just, population bomb. All right. Yeah. There, all right. There's a, there's a quote in this article. It says, I was a college student when I read Mr. Ehrlich's The Population Bomb. I took it to heart and now I have no grandchildren. But 50 years later, the population has increased to 8 billion without any dire consequences. I was gullible and stupid. <laughs> I, yeah, so, I don't believe everything you read, first of all. Like what? You read a book yeah. in college and you didn't have kids because of it? Like, what the <laughs> hell is wrong with you? <laughs> So maybe, uh, maybe like go for a second source or just like you base your whole life off that. Like, what are you doing? (laughs) I highly suggest, uh, if you're interested in this topic, listening to or reading anything Peter Zihan, uh, promotes and and discusses. Um, I've, I've, I know Vance has read the books, but he's got a, a number of great books. And I think he just did a Joe Rogan podcast, um, where he had a couple of interesting perspectives. The the first is, you know, what happens when the population table flips upside down? Um, basically, what's happening exactly right now in Russia, um, what will happen over the next 30 to 40 years in China, what has been happening in Japan since the 90s, um, is that they're not going to be able to support the economy or basically the population going forward because you don't have anyone in their 20s and 30s that is able-bodied and able to help support the growing population of elderly people in the 70s and 80s. Um, and his perspective broadly is, as it relates to Ukraine, Russia right now is that this is the last decade where Russia would be able to try to retake any any further territory because they just don't have the population growth to be able to support an army any decade other than right now. Um, so it is something that affects not just, you know, the the way that we think about these populations, but the economies in the future of which countries are going to be powerful versus not. I, I like I like Peter Zihan's uh, demographic stuff like that. That feels like the best work that he does when he gets like way out there into like geopolitics or crypto like that. that like, you know, like he was, he was like That's drawing bad, like battle bad, lines bad, on this map, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm like following them like early last year, like trying to figure out like, okay, if like Russia goes here and Ukraine's over here, like what happens to crypto prices? And I remember like near the, the peak of like, you know, fear around Russia and Ukraine, I was like, like talking to Michael and being like, Hey, we can, we can get Peter Zihan to come talk to us for an hour for $14,000. Should we do it? And Michael was like, absolutely not. Like this is too much emphasis on this one thing. Peter's great, but like he gets a lot of stuff wrong. And I don't think he's he that sound, good. He sounds though. really, really smart. And I know a lot of people, I, I like him. I like listening to him. I've heard him on, I didn't listen to Rogan, but I've heard other things yeah. and like read snippets of the book and I've subscribed to his newsletter for years. If you go back, he's also been calling for the downfall of China since like 2007. In like, there was an article, there's like many because I've been subscribed to him for a long time, like 2008, calling, he said, China will be China will be done in 10 years. 2009, China will be done in 10 years. 2010, China will be done in 10 years. So 
that's my that's a that's my pushback. You know, Tom Lee would tell you uh, you don't necessarily have to be right all the time. You just have to extend your time horizon. Just, just add some duration. Add some duration. Yeah, the the China thing is pretty nuts. It's like his estimate of the working age population of China is that it's going to get cut in half in the next like twenty five years. Which even if he's off a little bit on that, I mean, China's population shrank this year for the first time in I forget for a really long time. Yeah, so it is pretty interesting in terms of major major headwinds. But um, can, can we talk a little bit? Can you guys give us? Um, I'm not sure if you know the exact. There was a lot of confusion uh, on Twitter just about how the withdrawal queue is going to work with Shanghai. So I don't know if either of you uh, could like give us some color on on how that might work and then how that might translate into because it's been a good couple of weeks for uh, like liquid staking derivatives providers like Lido and Rocket Pool. So. Uh, maybe we could talk about how that impacts their businesses too. So I don't know if anything has changed. We're, we're not probably the uh, the number one topic. There would be probably a couple of people on our team that would be a, a better um, example to to discuss this. Um, but our understanding is that there will be a certain amount of um, available to be go- going into the withdraw queue at any given point in time, and based on that queue and the amount. Uh, as a percentage of what is staked will determine how long it takes for that queue to basically work its way through. And it's a decay curve that, you know, as there's a higher and higher percentage of withdrawal requests, it'll take longer and longer for those withdrawal requests to happen. Um, and, you know, off the top of my head, I think if if it's like 10% of the state, so let's say there's 16 million right now, 1.6 million wants to be withdrawn. It's something like 21 days for 10% to get its, itself worked through. Um, once again, I'm not sure if that's exactly how it will process or if there's, you know, more fixed terms that go into that, but that's our understanding of how it'll work. We had one of our analysts, Westy, put out a really good thread. We'll link in the show notes about, um, about the whole exit queue and how, how it all works. So we can, we'll put that in the show notes too. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, broadly speaking, um, it's probably going to be a shit show when, (laughs) when, you know, things are enabled. Um, and it'll be like, a few days or a week of like up, down, sideways, who knows. Um, but, you know, I, I think as this stuff get, usually does, once it once it goes through and, and cycles through, it'll be fine. Yeah. Nice. What do you guys, uh, what do you guys know about Bits Lotto? Absolutely nothing. Not, Didn't even know nothing. the name. <laughs> I thought it was so funny. I, I, it's like DOJ sitting there like, all right, time to go after the big crypto blowups. Yes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Let's go after the big crypto blowups. All right. Who should we go after? Probably like three arrows. Those, those guys seem like schmucks. Genesis, all right. FTX, Celsius, no. Bits Lotto, baby. <laughs> like, where do you? I never even heard of this thing. I mean, if you had used Bits Lotto, I don't think you'd tell anybody about using it. I think that's why you haven't heard of it. Um, because you use it for what I assume is a very specific reason. You know, if you're in Russia getting money out or something like that. I think they also got the twofer here, which is you get, you know, someone crypto, you take them down. You also get to bash Russia a little bit. But the dead giveaway on the announcement was when it was the Eastern District of New York that was doing the announcement and prosecution instead of the Southern District of New York. And our our guy, Damian Williams, who is moving at lightning speed, like we generally assume the Southern District of New York gets like the highest profile cases. But, you know, 
I guess if you're breaking the rules and they take you off the map, that's not exactly a bad thing. So certainly not like a negative development. They're just cleaning up the space a little bit. Yeah, I mean, like, those figures, it's always hard to tell, like, how accurate they are. Like, are you counting both the deposit and the withdrawal, you know, of, like, one type of currency? Like, you double counting the 700 million TBD, but they must have found something that was, like, the smoking gun, which said that, all right, this is facilitating people exiting Russia via new financial rails into the U.S. or something of the of the like. Oh, this is interesting. I just went to... Bits Lotta's website. I'm I'm definitely about to get hacked or something now. Um, oh, it God, says this. So it's actually a bunch, it's a French notice, and it says something in French that I don't understand. But then below that, it says this service has been seized by the Gendarmerie Nationale Cyberspace Command under the authority of the French Paris Prosecutor's Office as part of a coordinated international law enforcement action. So I didn't realize I didn't realize that I didn't realize it was a the French teaming up with the U.S. I don't know. It, it probably just means that that's where they were using the hosting service from. Mm. What, when you when you go to a website and you see the this domain has been seized by the FBI, you know, warning. That's like a watershed moment in people using the internet. They're like, oh shit, like this can get real very quickly. <laughs> mm. yeah. yeah, you're now on the list. Mm. Speaking of. Well, I guess they kind of did take down the Pirate Bay in one fell swoop, but like there really hasn't been any other than Ross, like secondary culprits of that. Like or 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 like chasing the money trail of, of where that went and where it ended up. Like I'm always surprised that we never hear more about that, given that that was most of where all the Bitcoin was spent and used during the early years. Like there has you're to be some about sort Silk, of Silk Road. So sorry, not 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 Pirate Bay, Silk Road. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Um I mean, Tim Draper is where it went. <laughs> yeah, Tim Tim cleaned up on that one. Good for him. Pirate Bay still exists, right? I think Pirate Base. I don't know. Or um, there are alternatives. I like. I think they were. I think that was basically whack a mole. Like they took down one Pirate yeah, Bay. Yeah. A bunch of alternatives popped up. Uh, You're never going to be able to stomp that one out. At the end of the day, people want to access BitTorrent, so you. <laughs> there's always going to be ways to access BitTorrent. <laughs> My my favorite part of that story is Tim Draper paid forty percent higher than whatever the market price was for Bitcoin at the time in twenty fourteen, because his perspective was that it was clean Bitcoin because it was being sold by the FBI. That's pretty funny. <laughs> I kind of follow that logic. To be honest, these are yeah. clean coins. <laughs> Tim Draper also had a savage call for twenty twenty three Bitcoin. <laughs> well, he's still holding calling true. For He's, he's calling for 250k and yep. and okay but like dig into his reasoning a little bit his reasoning is that women are going to be uh like they're gonna do a i don't know if it's a 180 or a 90 degree turn but like you know women are gonna become the driving force in like bitcoin holding it's like ah, man like i would really love for the industry to have more gender diversity but I hang out in crypto a lot. All I see is dudes. Like it doesn't well, feel I mean, like. Know, lot, yeah, that, I heard that CNBC clip. He's like, women control eighty percent of retail spending today. Only one in seven Bitcoin wallets is held by women. Then that's gonna, yeah. Well, that is going to bridge is going to be like closed and boom two fifty. Well, so so the the reasoning here 
if you extend it to the furthest understanding, is that Bitcoin will therefore be used as a form of payment for e-commerce. And it, well, that, but but also you know, that we're certainly going to adopt Bitcoin as a new monetary standard in 10 months is really kind of the reasoning for 250K. Um, but I, I think this is where like one thing that I've noticed over the years of being in crypto and seeing sort of like the trends and perspectives along the way and, you know, the bodies um, <laughs> that you've passed along the way is that when you got into crypto and your mental model of how you see the world and how you see crypto fitting into it is the largest determining factor of your investment strategy, where you work, what companies you think will do well, what products you think will do well. And the people that are still holding on to this, like Bitcoin as the new monetary standard and going to replace the dollar and therefore going to be used for e-commerce payments writ large is still a standard that uh, a standard operating procedure that people are still operating under. And it just, it kind of baffles me that people are still viewing that. It's like, have you been paying attention over the last three years? Like within crypto, this industry moves so fast. You have to change your mental model like every month, basically every, every couple of months, I would say, um, just to your better understanding of where things are moving. But it really does depend on whatever your mental model is as basic driving force of where you see the industry going. I though I agree with you on that, but I also don't understand why those have to be two incompatible mental models. Like, can't you, like, let's say you think that you sort of believe in the Bitcoin. You don't even have to believe it's going to be like replace the dollar, you know, but you can still be excited by that aspect of it and hold Bitcoin for that. But can't you also see everything that's going on with smart contract platforms and dApps that are built on top of them and realize that Bitcoin's not going to be it feels like people make it this like binary thing that I have to be excited by this or I have to be excited by this. Like, I feel like you could be excited by both of those perspectives. No, you know what I mean? You can be excited by both of those perspectives. I think that mental model only works in a world where Bitcoin is the biggest asset. If Bitcoin is the fifth biggest yeah. asset and people are telling you that it's going to be the new money and like all this stuff, what I'm going to say is, all right, you got to pass those other four assets first that are crypto native. And then you can, you know, think about challenging gold and the larger, you know, financial system as we all know it. But like, you can be excited about that in this current paradigm, but what if it shifts? Like, what if Bitcoin isn't the biggest asset? Then it feels like, you know, that is like your core risk. I don't, I don't think the risk of Bitcoin right now is depreciating in USD. I think it's the ETH BTC chart. And if that flips, a lot of that is called into question. And I would say, I totally agree with all that. I would say, you know, Tim Draper, you know, Vance and myself, um, being wrong about the time is also being wrong. And so you also have to factor in like how many years, how many decades is it going to take for that vision of the future to actually play out? And do you want to be spending the next 40 years of your life waiting for it versus the other micro cycles that are going to happen over the course of those 40 years? Um, so I, I, you know, that that's broadly, I agree. You could be excited about both, but it's just a question of when. Just speaking of, um, random clips that were kind of funny this week. Did anyone catch the Tucker Carlson clip about Bitcoin? This like didn't catch on at all, but this is so funny. All right. So <laughs> dude, this is, I don't, I don't watch Tucker Carlson, but I saw this clip and I like couldn't believe that it was real. So I looked it up. So Tucker Carlson has this theory. You know, there were all those plane outages like back in like end of December, beginning of this year. So he thinks there were ransomware attacks basically that happened and that these airlines got held hostage. And he goes, well, what do you pay ransomware attacks in? Bitcoin. So what if the government is buying Bitcoin to pay the ransomware attacks for the airplane flights 
And that's what caused this pump. I was like, that has got to be the weirdest explanation for this pump that I've seen coming out of anywhere. But honestly, I'm here for it. I'm here for it, Tucker. If you if that floats your boat. Yeah. Tucker's a crypto guy. You know, he he's a crypto yeah. guy's guy. Like he's willing to put out crazy conspiracy theories out there to explain a 5% pump. I love that. Wait, Good so he him. thinks that he thinks that the Bitcoin run-up was due to hackers holding the FAA hostage, which then forced the U.S. government to buy a bunch of Bitcoin to then pay yeah. off the ransom. Yeah, that's I, I buy it. I'm into that, dude. You know what? <laughs> I've had someone it's, describe it. It's more believable after the Twitter files when you see like the FBI agents emailing the Twitter customer support people to get like specific accounts banned. I can now yeah. imagine a world where like the FBI has like a few hundred million dollars credit on like Coinbase and is like putting in market buys and limit orders and like, you know, managing ETH BTC. I can see it. Do you, th- do you think they're calling up their Coinbase institutional rep and being like, all right, bye. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I can see it. Yeah. Someone pointed this out to me once like Tucker Carlson is not, if you don't agree with him, he's like kind of infuriating but if you agree with something that tucker carlson is saying it's like the best thing to listen to ever you know because he kind of gets on and like knits his brow like this and it's like can you believe they're doing this and you're like get him tucker you know it's like when you don't agree with him you know <laughs> it's just yeah all right let's let's uh let's close on this because we haven't we haven't really talked about this but uh gtx uh so there's a new exchange that's being uh proposed by Suzu and Kyle. Uh, just a disclaimer, Jason and I are both angel investors in this, so we're, we're pretty biased. No, just kidding. <laughs> that would be horrendous. Um, all right. So GTX, I actually thought, I, again, I didn't think this was real, but I, I looked into it. So Suzu and Kyle, uh, who are, you know, they were the, the founders of 3AC. They're hoping to raise $25 million to start a new crypto exchange called GTX. What they're hoping to do is basically bootstrap this demand for claims. Right. So there are a bunch of like FTX claims that are going to hit the market. Uh, but also there's like Celsius and Voyager as well. So they're hoping to start this exchange with the founders of CoinFlex. Um, so they're, they're, they're using that CoinFlex technology basically as like a base. And then they're going to start an exchange where you can trade these claims. Um, and they're going to issue a, a token against it or like USDG, USDG. Yeah. I think would be the name of the token. So I actually kind they, of don't. Uh... Are they going to have their own claims? Will they? Will you? Will you be able to trade three of those claims on? One hundred percent. One hundred percent. The other context here is that CoinFlex also has a forty-nine million dollar Roger Ver shaped hole in it, and so like that part isn't pristine either. So it's kind of so, like a weird. Yeah, we we had also heard that they're taking auditions for other co-founders and the only prerequisite is uh, having previously committed fraud because all four of the people of GTX or whatever it's called have. (laughs) Um, Yeah, Yeah. personally, I wouldn't invest just because the fraud hasn't been like truly huge. Like if they had Jeff Skilling or something on there, like then I would consider it, but... Not quite enough fraud experience, honestly, for me to. Their advisor is SBF. Let me let me give you okay. So like, they did something wrong, obviously, uh, potentially very very wrong, and like you know unforgivable. Uh, Coinflex, you know, has a hole in it. It was giving out preferential turns to certain customers on no liquidation accounts. Like that's also bad. Um, 
And I think we should be safeguarding the space in terms of like, you know, uh, pushing out the bad actors and, and all of that and, you know, so on and so forth. I also think at the same time, it's hard to permanently cancel someone from like ever earning a, an economic, you know, revenue stream again. And so like, I obviously don't think this is a good project for them to be going after, nor should really people like look at it too seriously, but I don't know, like how, how much punishment is enough? Like after the cases resolve and all of that stuff happens, like, are we then going to be okay with these people in the industry? Or like, like what is the exact line that we're moving here? No, you don't, I mean, let, them when you, you went, no, you don't let them back in the yeah. industry. You don't let Bernie Madoff nope. like go start another fund because he's been in prison for long enough. Like you don't. Yeah, I think but, but like in, you get barred from the securities industry very easily for committing securities fraud. And that's for a reason. You can't be a director of a company. You can't be you know affiliated with a fund. You can't be a registered investment advisor. Like there are clear lines. And when you cross those lines, you can't come back. I think the Vance, I hear the point that you're trying to make. And I think there's I I, I hear you on that level. But I also think like there was a there was a video actually that uh kyle davies did with um who's that guy he's he's a little bit out there he's an ex-hedge the surfer dude who's now trying to do acid capital i'm blanking on his name hugh hendry hugh hendry and there was like i didn't watch the whole interview but there was a clip i saw which his he was like well you can't make it back in your life right now is like the film rights you know but you can't trade again and like there's redemption i think for both sue and kyle and i also will caveat this by saying i don't know if like under the you know, outside of Twitter, they're actually working in good faith to like solve this stuff. But like, it doesn't seem like that outside. So like step number one, you have to try to repay your creditors, right? You can't go out and like build more equity value for yourself while you still have a huge debit, right? Like you got to go through the proper bankruptcy filings and try to pay. That's what I think I'm resisting. And also it doesn't really read to me like they're like real contrition. You know, every interview that they give is like, well, a lot of other people lost money too. And well, we made the right trade, but like other people piled in after us, which is a ridiculous explanation. Again. Or somebody, or somebody no, like... liquidated <laughs> us, you know, and it wasn't under our control at all. Or you know, there's, there's so many no... different ways. <clears throat> yeah, the, yeah. There, there's no redemption arc for Sue and Kyle um, in this industry. I agree. You know, the film rights. You know, Jordan Belfort, Wolf of Wall Street. You can go off and do that. Uh, you can, you know, squeal on all the other people and get a, a lower sentence if you want as well, but. There's no way that they're going to have redemption arc. And, and just the fact that they put this debt together and that they're going after this opportunity tells you everything you need to know, which is that they are not focused on getting any of their creditors' money back. The fact that they are trying to do this again is just par for the course of who they are and what they represent. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not endorsing a redemption arc here. I just am like very against like cancel culture, especially when it's like, economic disenfranchisement but like you're right they do need to pay everyone back they need to make things right before they can do this and like yeah it's it's just a shit situation i do think the idea is somewhat interesting like if you could tokenize these claims and have people trade against them everyone who's down bad and voyager celsius blockfi genesis whatever like they would do this like you can get legitimate volume from this sort of type of product and like paradoxically like this is the exact type of product that ftx would have launched had it still been around. Um, I mean, is, isn't this what Bitfinex did too. with their... This is what Bitfinex did with Leo. Yeah, okay. The token. Right. 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 A, a the, similar scheme. Yeah. Leo, like every single crypto bankruptcy that has been administered by lawyers and administrators has gone terribly. 
Like Mt. Gox is still winding up. Like there's other international exchanges we know of that are still winding up bankruptcies. I would argue that Leo is actually the best case scenario, you know, for any of these, you know, failed yeah, exchanges that have a hole in them. Leo was good. Leo was good. Yeah. Right. And like, yeah. you know, as, as much as we all hate SBF and all of that stuff and so on and so forth, but like he was advocating for the Leo plan. Now he's under like the Sullivan and Cromwell plan of like, you know, we are going to charge you a lot for this, you know, unwind. At the end of the day, I'm just not sure which one is actually better for the people that are owed money, which is the users who have, you know, money trapped on that platform. Like, do you want to get a hundred cents in 10 years or do you want to get 20 or 30 cents now or 40 cents now with some upside? Like, it's I mean, not everything the, is black the, and white. The the other big variable here too that you know we're, is, has yet to be figured out with a lot of these different situations is is it dollarized or is it in kind? And you know that I think is going to be you know as you see this five percent, ten percent, whatever pump over the weekend, how shitty must it feel sitting there watching your holdings in kind change, but you not even knowing whether or not you're going to get that back, or if it's going to be based around some July deadline. That's that's the free option, right? If it goes up, it's dollarized. If it goes down, I'm giving you that in kind. Like that, that's why they do these things. (laughs) Yeah. That's why they do these things. Like, you know, there are games that these people play. And like, if you have a token that's on chain that has like programmatic rights to cash flows, if I were a debtor or if I were a creditor, I would choose that. Just, just to be totally frank. Michael, let me do a hypothetical here. So we all think that Vance, I think that was fair. I think that was good pushback, uh, just for the, sake of the conversation, but it sounds like we all think that they should not be able to raise this money and that they should not be able to continue with GTX, which is GTX just a play on FTX. Is that a real thing? Okay. So I think that should tell you everything you need to know, but Michael, let's say that um, GTX actually is able to raise 25 million and they go through with it and it's a year from now and they've been able to actually somehow just, they raise this money, they launch, the claims are on there. And you see a really, really, really good opportunity to make some money on GTX. But if you do it, you're supporting their exchange. You're supporting them, right? By trading or buying things. Do you do you use GTX? Or like another hypothetical could be like for my mic, Blockworks mic, like if they came to us, they're like, we raised this money. We want to do a multi-million dollar sponsorship. A lot of ton of money, big, like big, big check for Blockworks. Do you take it? Listen, the quick answer is no. And I can't even tell you the number of investments that we've looked at where it's like we can put in $5 million and we know that we're going to return $10 million and like it's going to be a quick 2 to 3x and we can like get in, get out and move on with our lives. But the fact that over time, what you erode by doing so is your brand. And whether it's an investment firm or you know a, a news publication – um, platform that you guys have with Blockworks, over time, you will have lower lifetime value of your customers because you will have eroded the brand and you won't be able, maybe maybe that means that you won't be able to get the next deal the next time because you were involved in this pump and dump. Or maybe it means that you're not going to get the, the, you know, the hot star uh, reporter because like you're, you know, sponsoring GTX. Like there, there are a lot of downstream effects that I think are tough to see in the moment that, Ultimately, you you just there's there's a line in the sand and you don't cross it. Um, and so we have a very particular investment thesis and we stick with that. And um, yeah, we don't do things that are outside of our out of our boundaries. 
yeah, like we, we've never taken the easy money and like we're proud of that. And I think like, you know, Blockworks, there's a version of that where you don't do like the clickbait, you know, like articles that, you know, dissolve your brand over time. I would say like if you're an individual who has been robbed of money by one of these large exchanges, like you're not thinking about like, am I supporting, you know, Kyle and Sue or like the bad people? Like you look at these telegrams and these Reddit threads, like there are some pretty horrifying stories in terms of what happened to people who put their life savings in. They just want to get some money out. They want to trade. They want to have some sort of liquidity. And so like, yes, this is a probably bad founding team to product fit, but this is a solution that would get a lot of people liquidity in a short timeline. And unfortunately, you can't do this in the US. Like, I think they would call these securities. They would come after you. Europe, same, you know, Asia, you probably don't get a lot of uptick there. This is a product that's going to come out of Dubai or like one of these crypto friendly jurisdictions, if it comes out at all. And to be rooting against like the entire idea, I don't think is right. Like we should be looking at their proposal being like, you know, that's probably not what we're going to be choosing as far as the team who does this. But like, you know, these lawyers are submitting 10, $20 million bills, you know, every month uh, for these bankruptcies and, you know, the creditors are getting very little value for it. And so like, we should think about alternative crypto native ways to get people their money back. If, if we're really kind of the self-contained ecosystem that we claim we are. Just to be clear, I completely agree with all of that, but it is the founder product mismatch that, you know, I have issue with. Me too. That, I, I agree with that as well. Like we, I actually think it is a good idea, frankly. Like I kind of looked at this and was like, you know, those guys, Kyle and Sue are both smart. You know, they don't have to, it doesn't have to be all 100% negative. Like they made some really bad choices, I think, but they are smart guys. And I think this is actually a pretty interesting idea. But yeah, I mean, Jason, and I, like we're at an offsite right now. We just gave this whole, like we kicked off to our team, but like a huge part of what you're just trying to do is uh, to your point, Michael, about brand, you're trying to make it through multiple cycles and not like saw your own leg off, right? And make it so that your brand uh, loses a lot of its value. And that's, I think it'd be a pretty easy answer jason to your point of like huge sponsorship just imagine i, I we just couldn't do that it would i just yeah it'd be a pretty easy decision I think. You, you have to have a solid foundation if you're going to build anything meaningful like like an example of like a crypto media you know company that didn't make it across the last cycle remember ico drops michael yeah og og stuff right there like they just started as an uh an ico advertisement website and then they tried to branch out into like this full-throated crypto media empire and just the foundation was rotten and it never worked as a result. Like it's hard to quantify, but over time it really does add up. Yeah. hundred percent. And, and, and paper cuts that you don't even see just like ways that people perceive you. Those mm -hmm. compound. Right. I agree with you. Yeah, I agree. All right, fellas, this was a really fun one. Any, anything that we didn't get to cover or that we wanted to chat about? I don't think so. Good to be back. Hope you guys enjoy the offsite. You know, yeah. get the yes. troops fired up. Where Where are you? Where is the offsite? Savannah, check it out. Yeah, oh. Michael. This one This one was a little perplexing to me. Savannah, Georgia. I don't think I've ever, <laughs> Savannah I've is ever been there. Nice. I got really. Down. I was I like, I did a historical. I was running tour. off the list of the like top. You did a historical best. tour. I did a historical tour when I got down here. Yeah, I did a solo historical tour. I booked it on Airbnb experiences. Great. Wow. $25 for 90 minutes. It was phenomenal. Yeah. <clears throat> Mentally, I was going down the list of top five ski areas, expecting you to <laughs> list one of those for January weekend. But uh, no. All right. That's fun in Savannah. Savannah oh, we cool too. We've got a soft yeah. spot in our heart for Georgia. Did you guys know, by the way, I learned this. Georgia is uh, named after King George. Do you not? Now you do. 
Didn't wow. All right. Yeah, True facts with Yano. <laughs> did, you, did you learn that in the history tour? Yeah, 1733. Savannah was the first city in, uh, in, in Georgia. King George wow, created really? it to, uh, to be a buffer between South Carolina, which was like his, his uh, prize jewel, and then, uh, and then the, the Spanish army, which was in Florida, which was the largest army in the U.S. at the time. Now you know. More you Damn. Know. Should we just do a history pod next time? We all just read the facts and talk about history? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Cool. See you next week, guys. Later. Cheers. Later, guys.